Uh, Let's pray, and then we will sing, and then we'll start our last chapter in Genesis. Lord, we thank you uh, for tonight. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are here with us. We thank you for understanding. We thank you for salvation. Uh, Lord, it is uh, always sweet to uh, gather and to open the Word together. Uh, Because we do it a few times a week, it can become uh, seemingly common But there is absolutely nothing common about the fact that uh, the King of kings and Lord of lords who created all things that are created has come and and dwelt among a people and is dwelling among a people and giving us understanding as to your will and to your way and to your purposes and to your plans. Lord, I'm thankful that tonight we will get to look in Genesis 50 that you you definitely have plans and they are very good. Um, Lord, we ask that you would guide our time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we're concluding our study of Genesis. We've been in it for a few years, and uh, it's been a very sweet journey, and I eagerly anticipate the time that we're going to spend in Exodus in the coming years. That's where we're going next, because that's the next page. Um, While we're concluding our study, I want to make sure that we don't fall into the folly of thinking that we have plumbed the depths of Genesis. This book of beginnings goes deeper than we are able And that God gives us any understanding is a very humbling privilege. And so, yes, we're finishing our study of Genesis, but we are not finishing the study of Genesis. I want to make sure that's clear. In Genesis 49 last week, uh, at the end of the chapter, we saw, for the majority of that chapter, uh, but at the end of our time, we were considering how Jacob very personally blesses his sons at the end of his life. This is a very personal time where he's coming to the end of his life, Jacob, Israel, and he's blessing his sons in such a personal manner that he is showing the relational uh, aspect of our God where he's looking at each of them and and stating things that are clear and true about their lives. Um, An interesting point that we didn't have time to consider that I wanted to touch on at the beginning is that some of those blessings didn't really look like blessings. Like, what would be an example of a blessing that didn't look too much like a blessing? Yeah, blessing. You are going to be in forced labor for the majority of your life. Blessing. What else maybe doesn't look too much like a blessing? You are unstable as water. He went up to my couch, that whole thing. That doesn't sound like a blessing. What else? Yeah. Thanks for that, Dad. Yeah. What else? Yeah, someone, Simeon and Levi, your your, uh, weapons of violence are their swords. And and as I looked at that and I, I was discussing with someone afterwards... An interesting point comes up that um, the thing revealed to us is that it's always a blessing to communicate truth. Truth is not always easy to hear, but it is always a blessing to communicate truth and to receive truth. If your child has a pattern of sin in their life, it will bless them to point it out and then point them Godward. That's what's happening in large part here. It's not like, oh, all of you boys are wonderful. It's like, no, no, no. That's an issue. You have a pattern of violence. This is an issue. You're unstable as water. This is an issue. But he points out the pattern of sin, and then he directs them Godward. And it would be a benefit to us to do the same with our children as, as, as Jacob 
does here. And also, uh, it's true in your other relationships as well. So now we're going to Genesis 50, the final chapter of Genesis. I'm sort of in unbelief, disbelief. I'm not sure there's a difference between the two, but I'm in one of them. I can't believe we're at the end of the chapter. Um, so let's just dive right in. Verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. What kind of burial practice does this sound like? Egyptian. It doesn't sound very Hebrew. What are they doing? They're embalming him. It's likely he'll be mummified by the time this thing's done. That doesn't sound very Hebrew. It's very Egyptian. This is not a Jewish custom. This is the burial of Jacob. And the burial of Jacob, oddly, is very Egyptian. Essentially, he's being embalmed so as to preserve his body long enough to transport him to the place that he desires to be buried. It's the Egyptian custom that this normally be done by Egyptian priests. Are Egyptian priests the same as Hebrew priests? No. Uh, What would be one difference? Okay, we'll go with that one. They don't believe in God. So what's happening here is Jacob's making a point. He's making this move to have the, the physicians tend to this. He makes it clear that this is not a matter of religious practice. It's not a necessity, or it is a necessity, though it's not customary. So he's making this point. He's making sure that the physicians do it, not the priests. But it's, it's necessary, though not customary, that this is done so that they can transport him and, and, and be true to his wishes at the end of his life. How many days did it take to embalm? Forty. How many days did it take to mourn? Okay. Seventy days of mourning by the Egyptians. This mourning is more as an expression of honor. It's very hard for us to understand. Even as I'm about to explain it, and I don't even understand it fully. It's weird. Um, this is more of an expression of honor, and it's really uh, in compliance with their custom. For us to mourn, for that mean, like I'm, I'm talking wailing, crying out loud, uh, oh, 70 days. That's not normal for us. Normally, it's, it's shorter. We mourn, no doubt. And then there's ways that you mourn further on. Like after the death of a loved one, you mourn for years. But what I'm wanting us to see is that what this is, is this is more customary and in compliance with um, how they want to express honor. It's not the same as Joseph's heartfelt affection and compassion and sorrow. There's a difference between the two, and I think it's necessary that we note it. Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over, over him and kissed him. This is this heartfelt affection and um, compassion and, and sorrow. And it's necessary that we note the difference because that's not, the Egyptians weren't actually that sad about <laughs> Jacob's death. However, they mourned for 70 days. Also, remember Ben's point from his last sermon. Last week's sermon, he made the point that there's nothing more natural than birth and nothing less natural than death. What, what did he mean by that, and why does that come into play here? Why would we consider that? How is there's nothing more natural than birth and unnatural than death? Yes. Death is a product of the fall. What else? Christ conquered death. Yep. What we're seeing here is that, how old was Jacob? 
147. Well, surely he could just die. No one's going to be like, I was like, well, he's 147. Like, well, why would we be sad? Of course he's going to die. He's 147. It's because death is the most unnatural feeling. Jacob is 147 years old and his death was largely expected. They're still mourning. There's still necessity to, to, to weep and have proper sorrow. We mourn because of the very real loss and the very sobering reminder of the result of our sin. Godly grief is a God-honoring thing. But I, I want to make that connection to last week's sermon that, that childbirth, very, very natural thing, death, very unnatural, even for a 147-year-old. I mean, if y'all have ever buried a grandparent or a great-grandparent that was nearing like 100 years old, it's almost like with my, uh, my grandfather, um, he, was, he had uh, lung cancer. And at the end of his life, I mean, for the last weeks, it was almost like we're asking, Lord, please have mercy and take him home. I mean, it's, it's just this rattle as he's breathing and we're by his bedside and we're praying with him and we're tending to him. But even when he passes, there's this sobering, unlike any other feeling that, that, that he's, he's moved on. He's, he's not with us anymore. And it, it reminds us of the fall. And there's great sorrow there. Even though, Lord, please help this to happen. It's this, this very sobering thing. And it's very, uh, a very unnatural thing. Lamentations 3, 32 through 33. You don't have to turn there on this one, but I'll read it out loud. It says, though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. This is talking about our God. He'll cause grief. But he also has compassion that's greater than any compassion we could ever muster. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. Now keep that verse in mind as we move on. God's aim is that in your grieving, his glory is put on display. That's his aim, which we will see more clearly further on in this chapter. Look at verse 4. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, my father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, and then I will return. Though in a place of mourning and loss, Joseph submits himself to the house of Pharaoh. Why is this unique? Or special, or notable, or worth mentioning? He's in a place of mourning, yet he submits himself to the house of Pharaoh. What other approach could, J could Joseph have taken? Yeah. Hey, Pharaoh, I'm going to bury my father. That's that. Okay. And uh, he could have just done what he wanted. And what would that have communicated? Maybe some disrespect, insubordination, out of compliance. What does this approach communicate? What? Humility? What else? Gratitude? Yeah. He is still a slave. Why is he still a slave? <laughs> His brother started it. Do what? He hadn't been released. Why hadn't he been released? Because he's too good at this slave thing. He's lucky he got out of the prison. He was running it so well. Yeah, um, he's not released, and he's in the place that he is because of God. The, the very illustrious title of tonight's study is God has plans, they are good. Uh, God has plans, they are good. Um, this is part of God's plan. 
So what he's doing here is he's communicating that it's important that I bury my father, but he's, he's communicating this importance without subverting authority. And he's showing respect and he's showing sober-mindedness in a time where we are not naturally prone to sober-mindedness. It's a good example for us to follow. Sometimes when something big happens, there's a big change, maybe a change in job, maybe a change in family dynamic, uh, maybe the death of a loved one, we have a tendency to not be sober-minded and we let our words run and we say things that maybe we wish we wouldn't have said or, or um, we just act in a, ma- in a manner that's not in compliance with who our God is. Sometimes, not all the time. Here he sets a really good example of being um, communicating something that's necessary without subverting authority. Look at verse 6. <coughs> and Pharaoh answered. So Pharaoh gives a response. He makes the appeal to the house of Pharaoh, yet it's Pharaoh who gives the response. This is a sign of respect and a sign of honor. Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh. You'll hear that. Not normal. The elders of his household and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household, Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. A great procession is a sign of honor. How is this the sign of a contrary kingdom? You've heard that phrase, contrary kingdom. uh, You've heard it from the pulpit many times here at Crosspoint. How is this a a sign of, of a contrary kingdom? Who's being buried? A slave's father. That Hebrew slave, Joseph, his dad died. That's who's being buried. Now, how is this this procession a sign of a contrary kingdom? Different cultures are coming together to honor his death. What else? (coughs) Yes, he's an abomination. So the death of an Israelite shepherd who's an abomination is being honored greatly by a procession of Egyptians who are of high esteem. That's crazy. This is not normal. When Hebrew shepherds who are an abomination die in the land of Egypt, they don't normally get this kind of treatment. You see God's movement in this, and you see Joseph's wisdom in asking this, and you see Pharaoh's favor poured upon them because by God's doing, he is utilizing favor utilizing Pharaoh to pour favor and honor on his children. That, that's crazy. That's not normal at all. Um, so this abomination is, has horsemen and chariots and all the elders and all the people in Pharaoh's court going with them where? Yeah, where he wants to be buried there. Now, I'm going to share a quote, and I don't want us to get too distracted by the quote, but, um, but it's an interesting note. Look at all of the hugeness of the Egyptian burials. Consider, I mean, we're, we're looking, I mean, he's mummified, essentially. He is, he's embalmed and mummified, likely. And um, uh, there's a lot that goes into the, 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 the show of the whole thing. There's a quote by one smart guy who says, hypocrites, and he, when he says hypocrites, he's not just talking about those who say something and do something else, or uh, he's, he's talking about, those who are godless in in their manners and in their ways. Hypocrites are always more diligent in the performance of ceremonies than they are who possess the solid substance of things. 
assuming a far more ostentatious appearance than the faithful, to whom pertain the truth and the right use of the symbol. And he closes by saying these are shadowy ceremonies. What he's saying is that if you don't believe in what the symbol represents, go with me here. If you don't believe what the symbol represents, you may cling too closely to the symbol. Like, we could become enslaved to, we got to do the Lord's Supper, we're going to do it right, we got to do it every week, and, and, and it's because if we don't do the Lord's Supper, something bad's going to happen. Surely something bad's going to happen if we don't do this right. And you know what? We'll get golden cups for everybody. And everybody gets their own loaf of bread. And, 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 and on and on and on, we can be sort of ostentatious about the production because we don't understand what it is symbolizing. It's not only symbolic. But if we don't understand the substance of a thing, we become too involved in the shadow of what it really represents. So a funeral where we're, we're saying goodbye to a loved one and we're communicating some, something that's worth noting in their life and we're pointing to our God who's bigger than death because he conquered death and his son. I've seen many funerals with the horsemen and chariots on TV or I've had loved ones funerals who um, it was a big ordeal and the music was cued perfect, and it, everything just short of, you know, a trapeze artist. And, and then there's just not much mentioned about the Lord. And, and you kind of cling to the ceremony. You, kill, you cling to the symbolic thing because the substance of the thing is not at hand. Something to consider. Look at verse 10. Through 13. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Connect the dots here. This is crazy. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim, which we all know means the morning of Egypt. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. Like that little phrase is repeated over and over again so we know exactly where he's buried and we know exactly where they went. Now, the threshing floor was often found at a higher elevation than the rest of the land. So the threshing floor was where they would take the grain and they're wanting to separate the chaff from the grain on the threshing floor because the chaff is, is which is better, the chaff or the grain? The grain, good, we're on the same page. I wanna make sure we're not all you know, into this thing, but we do get the, the point. So the threshing floor was often at a, higher, a place of higher elevation than the rest of the land. Because what they would do was they would utilize the wind to separate the chaff from the grain. So God has led them in this procession to this point that's elevated where people are sort of paying attention to what's going on up on the threshing floor. Because it's obviously not separating chaff from grain necessarily, maybe in a symbolic sense. Um, there's more to maybe look at there. But um, what I'm getting at is this. They're on the threshing floor. It's at an elevated point. As God has done here. Sometimes, I mean, who witnesses the morning? The Canaanites. What do we know about the Canaanites? Not good guys. We'll go with that. Not good guys. So we've got not good guys witnessing the morning of godless people who are pointing to God's chosen Israel. 
It's crazy. The Canaanites are viewing the mourning of the Egyptians, saying, the Egyptians must be very sad. And that points to, why are they sad? Well, this guy died. Who's this guy? Oh, that's who God chose for his nation, Israel. His name's Jacob, or Israel, as he's otherwise called. That's crazy, this circumstance. And God elevates them to the point where it can be seen. What I'm getting at is this. As God has done here, sometimes he will place your circumstance on an elevated plane or a public forum even where others, possibly inhabitants of the land, maybe Canaanites, maybe family, maybe friends, maybe co-workers may glean something of your God. It's not like a perfect moment where they look up and like, I love Jesus and I repent of my sins and follow him wholeheartedly. It's not that cut and dry. But here God made it so that they were on this elevated place so that the Canaanites could see what was going on. And the Egyptians were a part of it, all for the glory of God and the death of one of his beloved. So God might have you in a circumstance where you are going through something or you are persevering through something in such a manner where it's sort of on a public forum, an elevated plane. And there's a purpose there that people may look and glean something about the truth of who your God is, what he is doing, and what really matters. It's interesting. Consider, if Jacob had been buried privately and in a common manner, his fame would soon have been extinguished. I mean, his fame is there mainly because of what God did with his son. And now he's been buried in such a way to where years later, Moses has no, there's no, I don't have to go look too far for the record of Jacob's funeral because he wasn't buried in this common and private manner because had he been so, his fame would have soon been extinguished. So you see God's movement through all this. Look at verse 14. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Question, why did Joseph return to Egypt? He's honorable. He left all the kids there. Mama would not be happy. I mean, you can kind of look at this and think, oh man, you're a Hebrew slave. You got, kind of got let out. What if y'all just keep going the other way? Well, you can't keep going the other way. The kids are at home. The moms are at home. The, the livestock is at home. Um, we're seeing that... Uh, what did he say before he left? Look back. Therefore, let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. He's a man of his word. He said, I'll be back, and he's going back. It's definitely worth noting. Also turn to Genesis fifteen thirteen. There's another reason that he went back. He is a man of his word by God's doing. He does have to tend to his family by God's doing. He could have selfishly pursued some sort of freedom, but he didn't by God's doing. And, and let's look at Genesis 15, 13. This is when God made his covenant with Abram and then changed his name to Abraham. And in 15, verse 13, God says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain. So what is Abraham's relationship to Joseph? Okay. Okay. He says, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. God gave him a heads up. 
you, you got to the promised land. You, you're in Canaan. It's not working out. There's a famine. It's bad. And then as they're going back, I am absolutely certain that Joseph knows God told my, it's, it's a recorded part of the covenant of the people of God. The, that their God said, you will be sojourners in a land, you will ser- be servants in a land that's not yours for 400 years. And so he knows that's not up. But he also knows that he's a servant already and that they are serving in that capacity already. So he knows that it's not time. There's something to be said here of patience. This stresses the importance also of communicating our heritage and faith and God's plans to future generations. Had that not been communicated to future generations, maybe Joseph, maybe Jacob, wouldn't be able to say, you know, um, our God said that this was going to happen, and so we're going to go back. Um, Consider Joseph. Just picture Joseph returning to, to Goshen and saying to his grandkids, we will make our way to the promised land when the Lord makes it so. It's in his time, not ours. Now keep that picture in mind as we move on because we're going to re-engage that picture here in the last part of this chapter. Look at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Why do you think Joseph wept? Yeah, that's a sad, sad state. When you get a response from someone where they think you're still holding something against them and you're not, you're thinking, what, what are we operating in here? Is there truth in, in the relationship that we have? Is it that skewed that, that you would think I still have this thing against you? And it sort of calls his character into question a little bit too. Is their communication with Joseph True. No, he didn't say that. On his deathbed, Jacob did not say that. That's an important point here. (laughs) Jacob did not say that. In reality, what have they received from the hand of God through Joseph? Like, we're painting this picture. What's the actual thing that's gone on, and what is their perception? What have they actually received by God from the hand of Joseph? Provision? Abundance, life, not death. What else? What? Protection. Yeah, Goshen, that's a very protected place. What else? Yeah, a livelihood that they can sustain. One of the main things is mercy, grace, provision, redemption, forgiveness. Calvin stated that guilty consciences are so disturbed by blind and unreasonable fears that they stumble in the broad daylight. An evil conscience is its own tormentor. You ever been there? I know I have. An evil conscience is its own tormentor. How is that true? An evil conscience is its own tormentor. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, how many years have they been in his house? 17. 17 years. Like this isn't just, well, we had a good week. I hope this next week's 17 years. Yeah. Yeah, and who spent all the final moments with uh, Jacob? Joseph. Yeah. Joseph's like, I was there, fool. He didn't say that. I was there the whole time. Now, an evil conscience is his own tormentor. Turn to Proverbs 28.1. We're going to camp on this for just a minute. Proverbs 28, verse 1. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Are you bold as a lion? Like, don't answer. It'd be weird if one of y'all were like, yeah. That's why I answered. Um, uh, Bold as a lion. The righteous are bold as a lion. Are you righteous? Are you counted righteous? Are you forgiven? Okay. How are you righteous? Through Christ. What does that mean? It's imputed to us, not imparted to us. That's exactly right. If it was imparted to us, it'd be like, I'm Christ, I'm totally righteous, here's a little bit of mine. It's not imparted. It's imputed to us. His righteousness is counted as ours. Do you see this? Christ's righteousness is counted as yours, imputed to you. Grafted, uh, grafted is language from Romans 9, particularly, where the Gentiles are sort of like grafted into the vine. So they weren't an original part of the vine, but they were grafted in. So in a sense, yes, because we are grafted in, we are counted righteous. God's chosen people, the children of the promise, the children of the flesh are not the children of the, pl- of the promise. So it's the promise that trumps the flesh in Romans. And so um, to be grafted in means that we weren't even, we're Gentiles. We should feel doubly amazed and blown away that God would extend this grace and favor to us. And it was only extended through Christ. Because we also note in Romans 12 how, or I'm sorry, Romans 14, how you see the beginnings of Jew and Gentile beginning to dine together. Where they're dining together and it's like uh, the Jews are looking at the Gentiles saying, hey, how about y'all be a little bit more like us? And the Gentiles looking at the Jews saying, how about y'all be more like us? And the Jews are looking at the Gentiles saying, I can't believe you ate that. And the Gentiles looking at the Jews saying, this is good steak. Why would you not eat it? And so they're all worried about the others being more like them because they're so unalike. But it's in Christ that they have this redemption and they're grafted in. And so what Paul comes in and says is, how about instead of y'all saying, you be more like me, you be more like me, y'all both just be more like Jesus. And so you're grafted in and we aim to be more like Jesus because it is Christ's righteousness that is counted as ours. Imputed is not an exact match with grafted, but imputed does mean you're not righteous. Christ is, 
because of what Christ accomplished, I count you righteous. Really, it looks quite unfair. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It's crazy, scandalous, that the perfect righteousness, he lived the perfect life. We didn't. He, he fulfilled this debt. The wrath of God landed on him, so it didn't land on us. Romans 1.18 says the wrath of God is towards unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. We suppress the truth. Christ comes on the scene and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And somehow, by God's grace and mercy, God's wrath that was due to us because we're truth suppressors was taken off of us and placed on Christ on the cross. And upon his death, his perfect righteousness was counted ours. It's like you deserve to die, but he died. You're righteous. So, sorry, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Leviticus 26, 36 says, the sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight. You ever seen a real skittish dog before? Like, you ever met a dog that you've never seen before? Maybe he's on the street and you, you go down to kind of touch him, kind of does that. It's a sign that someone beat the tar out of that dog. So the dog is thinking, you're going to beat me too. We can act like that with our Lord. How do we respond to God in a similar way in regards to our sin? Fleeing when no one is pursuing. Uh Yeah. 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 There is a very subtle line between true humility and misrepresenting what God's done. To say, I cannot make sense of why I am forgiven. God has shown me abundant grace and mercy. He, he gave me new mercy this morning when I woke up. And I am in a state of forgiven with him. And I, I cannot believe it. That's humility. But to say, to take it a, just a small step further and say, I am so bad and so wicked that there's no way God could ever forgive me. That misrepresents who God is. And that's the person who will, in fact, flee when no one's pursuing him. If you're forgiven in Christ, we don't approach Christ with this fear that he's going to squash us anymore. He's the good shepherd. I mean, the wrath of God towards unrighteousness, because we suppress the truth, yet we didn't receive that wrath. Yeah. Yeah, if we think we've earned something, then we would feel okay when we're doing well. But then when we screw up and mess something up, sin again, we think, oh, well, I got to do something better to earn that. That's a, that's a miss. 
understanding that is very common. It's always been common. Sin makes you stupid. That's why Adam and Eve hid from God behind a tree. Who made the tree? Uh, God. Can you see through it? I guess so, probably. And then they tried to clothe themselves in fig leaves. What do fig leaves do? When you take them from the branch, they wither. So the wind blows and your clothes are gone. It's not a good plan. What does God do? He clothes them in the skins of a, an animal. He, there's a sacrifice and they're clothed, covering the sin, covering the shame. We can continue to fear him in an unhealthy way because we don't really believe that we are forgiven. I, I'm almost certain that some of us sitting here don't really believe we're forgiven. Or some of us believe we're forgiven in, in some ways, but not, not in others. Like that's that other subtle misrepresentation of God. Like I believe he's forgiven me for this and this and this, but this over here, and this is wicked. I still struggle with this. And I, I don't believe I'm forgiven. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. This, uh, this is the reason we feel that guilt. Like the, the wicked feel this guilt and they flee when no one's pursuing them. The reason that we would feel this guilt is because we don't really believe we're forgiven. If you don't really believe you're forgiven, you're going to feel guilt. Like let's say you get in a fight with your spouse and you think, okay, I brought flowers. We're good. I'm good, right? You might walk away feeling guilty because you don't really believe you've been forgiven. Or it could be the other way around. We feel that guilt because we don't believe we're forgiven. So we move forward in a manner of trying to earn something from him or even make a deal with him to somehow lay hold of that which we already have, which is true forgiveness. It's crazy. You have true forgiveness in Jesus. Like you don't, you don't keep trying to lay hold of it and to, and to somehow grasp it and earn it. You can't. That's why it's called what it's called. When I find myself trying to make a deal with God, you ever do that? Oh, Lord, I promise I'll never do this again if you make sure that this happens. <laughs> I'll be a better steward of my money if this bill can be paid on time, Lord, I promise. Um, when I find myself trying to make a deal with God, I, I try to remind myself of Jesus' words on the cross. It is finished. You are forgiven. Look at verse 18. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. So after they hear of Joseph's response, they're encouraged. And so they go to him and say, He's not going to kill us. Let's go to him. And then they fall on their faces as servants. Now, here's some pre preparation. This next part is probably the most important point in Genesis. And we might finish Genesis later. It might not be our last week. Look at verse 19 through 21. But Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Why? Because he really forgave them. I am unable to speak kindly to someone and comfort them if I'm really still holding a grudge. He's not. They're truly forgiven. And what they expected was not even close to what they got. 
Um, the brothers fear Joseph. Their fear of Joseph is imbalanced because they don't have a right fear of God. And they have a misconception of the whole scenario. They don't think that they're forgiven, and they are. Do you think it was difficult for Joseph to respond in such a manner? I do. Because what they just did was this. You're lying, and you're putting words into the mouth of my deceased loved one for your own benefit. Imagine you're at a funeral for a loved one, and someone comes up and says, Hey, when they were dying, they told me to tell you to be nice to me because of that thing that I did. Man, I would want to punch that person in the nose. Are you kidding me? I'm mourning the loss of a loved one, and you're going to put words in their mouth for your own benefit? That's unsettling and frustrating and anger-invoking. Yeah? Yeah. The reason that I believe it was hard was because of the emotion of the circumstance of the death of a loved one. That's what I'm taking into account there. I believe over 17 years, they're truly forgiven. I believe he's not harboring any resentment or anything. But upon, when you have truly forgiven someone, when there's true forgiveness and there's not holding a grudge, if 17 years later, they come and address you in a disrespectful way as though you lack character and didn't truly forgive them, I would imagine it would sort of stir up some emotions and say, What? Are you kidding me? To where he might be tempted. We can't say for certain because we are imposing something on here. But he might be tempted to be like, man, you know what? He is gone. I am powerful. I did forgive you. But if you're not going to accept it, then so be it. Go be this. That's possible. But it's true that he, is, he has uh, absolutely forgiven them. And the circumstance is very emotional. Look at verse 20. Yeah, yeah, it's a fulfillment. Yeah, 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 that, we could spend a whole week on that, no doubt. Look at verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is one of the most monumental passages in the book of Genesis. The truth is very important here. He says, you meant evil. They're forgiven, right? It's been 17 years since he saw them. It's been like a decade since it happened. I'm sorry, a century since it happened. A hundred years ago was when they sold him into slavery as a 17-year-old. So he looks at them and says, you meant evil. Would you have a hard time saying that to someone? Have you ever said that to someone? You meant evil. God meant it for good. We have this misconception, many of us, that we ourselves are not capable of evil. False. And that we would never want anyone to think that we thought that they were capable of evil. What is sin? Evil. Are you capable of sin? Yes. You meant evil. Okay. How did Joseph's brothers mean evil against him? Let's state the evil. What did they do? Oh, yeah, that, murder, evil. What else? Sold him into slavery. Oh, human trafficking, evil. Lying, evil. If it's an opposite of the fruit of the spirit, it's evil. If I lack gentleness, it's not like ah, sort of bad. It's evil. 
opposites of fruitfulness and faithfulness. Psalm 51, 4 says, I have sinned and in doing what is evil in your sight. So we want to couch it in terms where it's like, it went really evil and I'm sorry. Bull, evil. Now, how did God mean it for good? Well, first, Romans 12, 9 says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil. If you don't think that anything's evil, you're not allowed to abhor it. If something bad happens to someone and someone has sinned against in a horrible way, I mean, some of the most horrible ways I can think of would be like rape. If, you, if, you're, if you're not comfortable calling something evil, then you can't abhor it rightly according to biblical principle. We should abhor what is evil. If something like that happens to someone, if someone has sinned against, if, if someone has a horrible injustice brought upon them by the sin of another, you can call it evil. But here's the kicker. God meant it for good. God didn't take it and change it to good. He meant it for good. That's what's crazy to me. This is a foundational truth that encourages every one of God's children daily. One commentator said, We may say with truth and propriety that Joseph was sold by the wicked consent of his brethren and by the secret providence of God. God is more than just crafty. See, if God just changed it where it was like, man, that was really evil, but God like came in and kind of twisted this and turned it and put it over here, and now it's better. He's not just crafty. He's sovereign in all things. So they meant it for good. He meant it for evil. The exact same thing. Now, how does this help you rightly receive wicked intentions, actions, and words from another? Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. One commentator said, whatever poison Satan produces, God turns it into the medicine for his children. Why do you need medicine? Because there's a deficiency. There's an illness. There's something lacking, and it will help. The evil will? Yeah. So is God evil? No. See, is he authoring? Is he doing? Is he a sinner? No. No. Did they mean it for evil? Yes. Did he mean it for good? Yes. Now, stick with me. There is a sweet saying um, in these, it's a series of books. And the saying is, the swans sing sweetly when they suffer. So if a swan suffers, the song that comes out of their beak is sweet. It's, it's odd. You would think it would be horrible. When, when another animal suffers, it sounds really bad. Somehow when a swan suffers, they sing sweetly. Um, who are some swans that you have witnessed? What, what are, what's the sweetness of their song? Consider our heritage. I mean, who's the first person that comes to mind when you think of a sweet song that comes from suffering? Please say Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. Yes, Jesus. The swans sing sweetly when they suffer. When Jesus suffered, we receive some of the most beautiful truth from that we could ever, ever imagine. Then we think of the martyrs who have gone before us, those who have given their life for the glory of God. The song that goes on was not muffled or quieted or stopped by death and by the suffering. Something to consider. What we're seeing here is not just a call to endure evil, but to understand our need for it. This call in Genesis, at the end of our chapter, at the end of our book, is not just to endure evil, but to understand our need for it. John Bunyan said, we should be overgrown with flesh if we had not our seasonable winters. 
It is said that in some countries trees will grow but will bear no fruit because there is no winter there. Consider if you agree with the following phrase. Just think in your head. You don't have to answer out loud. There is no pointless evil. You agree with that? I mean, think, I mean really, I'm not just looking for a yeah. Think about it. That's a hard phrase. Think about the most evil thing. You, I mean, the evil actions that we see and witness on the news and, and other people's lives and maybe in your own life. Maybe you've received evil from the hands of a sinner, a fellow sinner who's a lot like you. And it was horrible. There is no pointless evil. Do you believe that? There is a way of thinking that's called open theism. Open theism says that there is a God, but that God is not foreordained things. He is not active in what's going to happen tomorrow, but he sort of just left it open. Now, that's an oversimplification probably of open theism, but in short, it means there's a God, but he sort of left it open. What's going to happen is going to happen. He's still God, but, but it's just going to, he's left it open. Now, I want to read something from this book. Uh, the Hidden Smile of God is what it's called in the series called The Swans Are Not Silent. That wasn't my idea on the quote. Trust me. There are modern-day open theists who say, this is what the modern-day open theist would say, who doesn't believe that God is sovereign and active in what will happen tomorrow. Modern-day open theists who will say, God does not have a specific divine purpose for each and every occurrence of evil. When a two-month-old child contracts a painful, incurable bone cancer that means suffering and death, it is a pointless evil. The Holocaust is a pointless evil. The rape and dismemberment of a young girl is a pointless evil. The accident that caused the death of my brother was a tragedy. God does not have a specific purpose in mind for these occurrences. When an individual inflicts pain on another individual, I do not think we can go looking for the purpose of God in the event. I know Christians frequently speak about the purpose of God in the midst of a tragedy caused by someone else, but this I regard to simply be a piously confused way of thinking. This is a, a quote from an open theist. A piously confused way of thinking. Neither Jesus nor his disciples assumed that there had to be a divine purpose behind all events in history. The Bible does not assume that every particular evil has a particularly godly purpose behind it. And then there's the Bible, not just someone's thoughts on it. With the resounding claim over every evil perpetrated against God's people, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. That's what it says in Genesis 50:20. This is what Joseph said to his brothers who had sinned against him and selling him into slavery and lying to his father Jacob. What he says is not merely that God turned this evil for good after it happened, but he meant it for good. This is confirmed in Genesis 45, 7, where Joseph says, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant. Open theism leads to a way of thinking that says God is cruel because he could have interceded and kept this horrible thing from happening. The Bible leads to a way of thinking that says God is on his throne and he's sovereign in all circumstances. There is no pointless evil. And God has a plan for my good and his glory, even in this horrible circumstance. It doesn't minimize the circumstance. If you're thinking that I'm cold-hearted at this point, if you're thinking, you don't know what I've been through, 
this, this does not minimize the circumstance. It's evil. Evil is evil. But God is sovereign and has a point in it. And I would offer that there is no pointless evil. And like God at the end of this, Joseph provides for the children and comforts them and speaks kindly to them. That's how our God is. He loves you very much. And don't miss that. The forgiveness you've received is a sign of great love. The kind of love that you, you don't even know how to have without him. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I bless you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Come out of her, my people. That is a God who loves his children very much. And Joseph reflects that in his character. Verses 22 through 26. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Mashir and the son of Manasseh were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land into the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. That's how we end Genesis. Joseph dead in a coffin in Egypt. It seems not so great, but it's great because God has a plan and it's good. Isaiah eight seventeen says, I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob. Do you see yourself as actively waiting upon the Lord? Because what's reflected in these last verses, it's going to be a few hundred years before Israel would be brought to the promised land. And things are going to get worse before they get better. Their hardest days are actually certainly before them. Joseph confirms this promise on his deathbed, ensuring that this truth must be passed to the coming generations. I don't say something on my deathbed just because I care about the people in the room hearing it. I want you to go and tell your children and your grandchildren. He's saying this may not happen with your kids. This may not happen with your grandkids. But one day, there will be a generation that sees God deliver his people to the promised land. That's the call you have. That's, that's this, this charge you've been given. Genesis ends with the same proclamation and charge that we have. We tell of the return of Jesus to future generations, knowing that one of those generations will truly experience his return. The truth of God is immortal. It will happen. It is an absolute certainty. So we end our study the same way they ended their time in Genesis, awaiting the return of our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you very much for our time in Genesis. I, uh, I eagerly anticipate what happens in Exodus. I'm thankful for the stage that you have set for your glory. We love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.